Recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana, this is Uncle Dan's Story Hour, a special for the holidays. Featuring author and screenwriter Dan Wakefield, a master of the word. With featured guests Anne Ryder, Eileen Flansbaum, and Wasima Ali. Brought to you by Beer Brewery, Noah Eads, and listeners like you. tonight. Hello to all of you and welcome to Uncle Dan's Story Hour. You're here on an interesting night. This is, for better or worse, our holiday show. So we're going to be telling some very personal stories, stories about spirituality, I'd say more than religion. With us tonight, we have a Jewish guest and a Muslim guest and Dan's fantastic stories along with our regulars to Susan Neville and Sophie Fott, who is on the saxophone. So these are stories kind of from the lost and found department, the uneven, messy, often lonely journey of what we would call seekers. Dan, you've got a line about spiritual starts and how they sometimes come from highs and lows. Yes, I've heard and I think this is true that a spiritual journey, a search for some being in touch with the spiritual either starts from a high point in life or a low point in life. The high point example would be Tolstoy, who, uh, when he was told that he was now the greatest novelist in Europe and maybe in the world, and his feeling was, so is this all there is? Is this it? (laughs) God, there's gotta be something else. So he really started on a search for God and a search for spirit and religion. And I started from a low point. Uh, that's more my way. And I had been in Hollywood. I went out to uh, create a series on NBC called James at 15. This was back in 1977. And then I stayed on for two years and did some TV movies and started getting more and more upset. I, Hollywood's the worst place for a writer because when you, go to pre, when you go to sell a show, you don't hand them a piece of writing, you talk it, you pitch it. And I was no good at pitching <laughs> stories. And so things were going downhill and uh, I was drinking more and feeling worse. And for the first time in my life, I went to a doctor and I just said, you know, I have this funny feeling that my heart's beating too fast. Maybe I'm a hypochondriac, but would you mind checking it out? So he gave me a full physical checkup. He said, well, you're fine, except that uh, your resting pulse is 120. And that's twice as much as what the normal pulse should be. So uh, tell me, are you in the entertainment business? I said, said, gee, how did you know? You must be mystic. Anyway, when he told me that, and he said, if if I didn't do something about it, I'd be in trouble. And I took the next plane back to Boston. Uh, That's where I'd lived most of my life. And uh, I went back to Boston. And this is where it's sort of like an unbelievable morality play. I met this doctor, a great guy who had just started a cardiac rehab program, 
and his name was Dr. Hartley. No way. <laughs> you couldn't put that in a novel. <laughs> anyway, just by going back to Boston, my pulse went down to 100, and then after I did his program of diet and exercise, it went down to 80, and uh, he called me in, I thought, to just congratulate me and say, that's it. He said, no. He said, we think your pulse should be 60. Would you be willing to go a month without having anything to drink? Well, that was like asking if I could climb Mount Kilimanjaro with toothpicks. <laughs> and I was, quote, only drinking wine, but you can drink enough wine to do you in. And so, but everything he had told me to do had worked. So I said, okay, I'll do it. So I still sometimes hung out in bars because that's where my friends were, but I wasn't drinking. I didn't have a drink for that month. Toward the end of that month, it was just a few days before Christmas, and I was in a bar on Beacon Hill, and I heard some guys talking, and one of them said, oh, I think I'll go to Mass on Christmas Eve. And I'm not a Catholic, but I used to go to church on Christmas Eve, and so I thought, you know, that's a good idea. And I hadn't had a thought like that in 25 years. But I think the clarity <laughs> brought that thought. And I didn't even know where churches were in Boston, even though I'd lived there 25 years. And so I looked in the Boston Globe religion page where they have little ads. One said, King's Chapel, a candlelight service with carols on Christmas Eve. And that sounded innocuous enough, so I went there. And what I didn't know when I walked in was that the Christmas Eve service would begin with the entire congregation standing and the church was packed on Christmas Eve. Everybody in Boston, where they belonged to church, they came there and they stood up and sang Adeste Fidelis in the Latin. And it was very powerful. I got the idea this wasn't going to be as innocuous as I thought. <laughs> uh, but it was candlelight service and carols, but what they didn't say was that between the carols, the minister read some short passages, not necessarily from the Bible, but from other things. He read something from an Evelyn Waugh novel called Helena about the latecomers to the manger. And he then said, something about the late comers to church. And I thought, oh my God, he knows I'm here. And I, I slunk down in the pew, and it was one of those below zero nights in Boston. And uh, I, I began to kind of quiver and shake. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm having a religious experience. But it turned out to be the flu. And, <laughs> So I didn't go back to church till Easter when it was a nice day and nothing bad happened. And then I started going on what I thought of as regular Sundays, which was like being a fanatic. 
And anyway, I ended up being very involved in that church, King's Chapel, and it became a big part of my life. So you almost had to go to the low point, which was Hollywood at yeah. that point for you, yeah. in order to sort of prime the pump to be ready to walk back through the door of faith. And Is I that had, right? I had to be clear. I had to have some clarity, some clarity. from not having uh, wine in my system all day long. Okay, so you were raised as a Christian, but you fell away for a while. What, what do you call that your Freud for God period, correct? Uh, well, yeah, that was it, but it started at Columbia. I went to Columbia, which I loved, and it was a great college. I was glad I went there, but Christianity or any religion was not very well touted at Columbia College, and I started reading a lot of Hemingway, he was very influenced, and he had a short story called A Queen Well-Lighted Place, where a lonely man went there every night, and his prayer was, Arnada, who art in nada, nada be thy name, nada being the Spanish word for nothing. nothing. But you have told me before, I think, that you, you felt that you were wired for faith, or at least wired to be a seeker. Would that be correct? Yeah, I guess so. And that was because of an experience I'd had in childhood. And I'm sure that experience came about or was primed by going to a Baptist Bible school. And the reason I went some friends of mine at school 80, one of them said he had a rich aunt who would send us in a taxi cab across town to go to this Baptist church Bible school. And none of us had been in a taxi. We'd never even seen one except in movies. So uh, we went there and we really loved it. And they had, I loved, you know, they had great stories and great hymns like throughout the lifeline, someone is drifting away. And uh, anyway, sometimes six or eight m months, maybe a year after that, I had this experience, which I wrote about in a book called Returning. And I said, on an ordinary school night, I went to bed, turned out the light, and said the Lord's Prayer, as I always did, prepared to go to sleep. I lay there only a few moments, not long enough to... to go to sleep. I was clearly and vividly awake during the whole time when I had this sensation that my whole body was filled with light. It was a white light of such brightness and intensity that it seemed almost silver. I was neither hot nor cold. It was neither burning nor soothing. It was simply there, filling every part of my body. I did not hear any voice or any sound at all, except for that matter, but with the light came the understanding that the light was Christ. The light was the presence of Christ, and I was not simply in his presence, but his presence was in me. The experience lasted for several minutes, long enough for me to be fully aware of what was happening to know it was real and not an illusion or trick of imagination or anything else except what it was, the light that was the presence of Christ infusing my whole being. Uh, for some time, you know, I didn't tell anybody 
and I, there were times when I wondered if it meant I was crazy. And uh, one really good thing about Columbia, I read a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience by William James, and it turned out that the experience of light and of people through the ages having experiences of feeling the light was in fact very commonplace. And it didn't make me extraordinary in any way, and it, it made, sort of made me relieved that uh, it was not something uncommon. But it resonated yes. enough that you've remembered, and did you ever have a feeling like that again? No. No. So it was a gift. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I had other things that, nothing like that, no. Mm -hmm. But you had an extraordinary experience, and I know everybody is anxious to hear about that, of your interview with Mother Teresa. And I would like to hear how, first of all, you brought it off. You got somebody to let you go to Calcutta from Indianapolis and uh, then how you got to interview her. Well, at the time, um, I had been doing a series called Hope to Tell, which was born out of frustration. I had wanted to go into news and because I wanted to make a difference. And after several years in news, my career was going okay, but I didn't feel we were making a difference at all. Um, it was the tabloid news, if it bleeds, it leads. It was, it, it, it was depressing to listen to for the audience and it was depressing to give as an anchor and reporter. So I started looking at getting out of the business and I felt, when we're talking about prayer and meditation, um, I felt a nudge. Um, so many of these stories that we did were stories of difficult things that had happened. But as we all know, here in this room and the people listening on the radio, if you ask somebody who's been through something difficult, you know, the accident, the diagnosis, someone who walks into or out of your life, six months, eight months, a year later, usually they're not complaining. Usually you'll find somebody who says, I would not have wished this, but I learned something about myself as a result of it. Um, I'm a better mother now or a better uh, friend or a better uh, daughter. So Hope to Tell was the start. And Hope to Tell was about stories of people like you and me and, and you know, people whose names we don't know. But in the course of that, you know, I thought, okay, what are the really big stories I want to do? Well, Mother Teresa was one. Well, you know, get in line. That 60 Minutes had been all the way there. And she, she didn't, it's, it's not that she had contempt for the mainstream media. It's just she had other things to do, you know. She was helping the poor and dying. So I wrote her a letter. And I told her about Hope to Tell. And I told her I'm from Indianapolis and I'd really like to come to Calcutta to profile the, this work that she was doing. And I got a letter back. I will never forget it. it. It arrived, postmarked Calcutta, and then by way of San Francisco. And I opened it and it said, Dear Ann Ryder, thank you for the love you have for God's poor. I do not do interviews and film projects, but you are welcome to come to Calcutta to share in our works of love. I've enclosed a list of accommodations. They do not make reservations. Bless you, Mother Teresa. Signed in little blue magic marker. So I ran to the general manager's office, slapped that baby down on his desk and said, look at this. I've got an invitation from Mother Teresa. 
And he said, he looked at it, and he said, Ann, that's the nicest rejection letter I've ever seen. <laughs> but undaunted, and this is how I know miracles do occur, um, within five minutes, my news director and I had talked that general manager into sending us halfway around the world for no more promise of a story than me standing in the streets of Calcutta telling you what was going on back behind us. Because they said no, and I figured no meant no, and I told him, I said, I don't know what we'll get, but we'll get something. And I thought it was extraordinary, and I told him this, to be a journalist and to get an invitation. I later found everyone who wrote to her got a letter like that. <laughs> but ignorance is bliss. So we got on a plane with two photographers, because they were convinced that our equipment was going to be at risk in a place like Calcutta. And I went to work. For once in my life, I didn't try to control it. And I figured no meant no, and the guys stayed out in the streets, and I thought, I don't know how I'm going to tell this story, but unless I experience it, I, I don't have a chance. So I went as a volunteer. They knew I was a journalist, but I went to work at Prem Don, her home for the mentally ill and destitute. And I had read everything I could get my hands on about Mother Teresa, and it said, get out of your comfort zone if you want to be touched. Well, I was out because we walked into a room that's about four times the size of the Red Key. Cement floors, about 100 degrees in there, cots pushed to the side, and I walked into the side of about 60 women, naked, emaciated, skin and bones, crouched around a vat of water. I was given a bar of soap and a cup and a sponge and we were to bathe bodies straight off. And I wasn't comfortable doing it, but I did it. And I wasn't thinking about what I was doing. I was thinking about how uncomfortable I was. And I went to bathe the second woman and she screamed when I put the water on her, shrieked and recoiled. And I knew the water wasn't hot. And so I tried again, she screamed again. So the only thing I could think of to do was to put everything down and put my hands on her back. And she let me massage her. And there was a transference in that time. And I stopped thinking about myself and I wanted her to trust me. I just wanted her to trust me. And I, I used the word love and it's not too big a word. So I took my time bathing her and I dried her off and put a fresh dress on her and I will never forget the look in her eyes, that the look that had been so terrified, so wise, and if eyes can smile, they were smiling. And she muttered something in Bengali and I don't speak Bengali, but it sounded nice. And what Mother Teresa wrote again and again resonated. It is not how much we do which matters, it's how much love we put into doing it. Now, I will tell you, Dan, that has been the hardest thing to abide by since coming back to follow. Because we're, we're not used to measuring our success by, you know, how much love we show. We're used to measuring it by how many things we get done in the day and how many things we cross off the to-do list. So that was a profound lesson. And then to make a long story shorter, it was key in my getting the interview my going in, my not being a pushy journalist for once. And so word started to spread around the mother house and I got sick and one of the people from the mother house, not a nun, but one of the volunteers came to see me. I think she was kind of checking me out and we were, I mean, I was terribly ill from some bacterial thing I had picked up. Anyway, when I recovered, they invited me back to the mother house 
they being the toughest nun you've ever met in your life named Sister Priscilla. Mother Teresa was a very good administrator. She was smart enough to put like a bad cop between her and everybody else and Sister Priscilla was the bad cop. So she interrogated me and I mean really did, what are you doing here? You brought photographers. And within 10 minutes, we had talked about this work and I think that she read that I was there for the right reasons and she was the angel of the project. She wrote, she, she said, hold on right here. And I could hear type, 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 type. And she's back there typing up a permission slip. And she said, when do you leave, you and your photographers? I said, we leave Saturday. Okay, so it's Wednesday, Saturday night. And she said, here's permission to shoot in every one of our homes for the poor. And she says, and Saturday morning, you'll talk to Mother Teresa. And then she said, would you like to meet her now? Oh, no, sorry, I got to get back to the hotel. Uh, yeah, so we were off and running, and we got the chance to shoot in every one of the homes, and we ended up doing a documentary on it, little Indianapolis TV, and um, it was quite an experience, It and still is, still is. The lessons are still manifesting. That's great. And so I was, as you put it, wired for mine. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up a Catholic? I did not. I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, and I, I fell away from faith um, pretty hard um, in, when I was about 14, 15, 16, all the way through college, past college. Part of that, I'm sure, was you know, the death of my mother. Uh, she died very young. She died at age 44. Um, I was young. I thought, well, if, if, if this is God, um, I, I don't want to know God because this is cruel. I later came back, it was, it was around the time of my marriage. And what's funny is, you know, I don't think that there's any one path. I don't think you even have to choose a path. I think free will is one of the great gifts. But I found a weird sort of comfort in the Catholic Church. And I, I say weird, it's, I, I didn't know anything about it, but it felt eternal to me. And it felt, it, it was a place I was almost instantly comfortable. And when I would travel, you know, I remember being in Italy and falling in line behind a procession. It was some sort of feast day and walking into a church I had never been in and going to mass. I mean, wasn't expecting it, coming back from dinner. The whole thing was in Italian. I don't speak Italian. But when it came time for sign of the peace, there was this perfect central casting, doughy Italian peasant woman next to me. And she didn't just say peace, she, she gave me this hug. And it was divine, I mean, it was just great. And I thought, okay, so this is what they mean by where two or three are gathered. This is what they mean by a community of believers. And it just, it, it, it made a big world seem small. So yeah, I think I was wired for it. I think I'm, I would call myself a seeker and um, I have a, an open mind about other faiths and no faith because I've met lots of people who say they're atheists, agnostic, who are, who are doing some of the most profound service and acts of love that I've ever seen. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to say that uh, I think faith, well, one of the best things my minister told me was that faith is elliptical that it's not like a certain straight path of a mountain 
and uh, it's not that simple. And you move away from it and you move back toward it and things shatter you and you, you wonder how you ever had faith and you move back. And, and one of my dark nights, the soul, and I must say, when I first got into all this and went back to church, I thought, oh, the dark night of the soul, that's really good. I think I've had mine, you know. Uh -huh. And what I realized is there's more than one. In fact, there's a whole lot. Yeah. And uh, one of mine was one of the darkest, it turned out, was a five-year Freudian analysis in New York in the 50s, a kind that they don't even do anymore where you go in five days a week and just lie on a couch. And uh, so it's not at all like psychotherapy or any of the very helpful things that are going on now. But uh, I was always going to write about that, write it as a novel. And then I thought, when I was writing Returning, I thought, no, you know, this is the time I want to write, I don't want to write as a novel because people will say, oh, it's fiction, you just made it up. And I wanted to write as precisely as I could exactly what was said and what happened. And I did that in returning in a thing called The Couch. By the way, it was published in the New York Times Magazine. And the next day, uh, I, I got a call from somebody uh, on my answering machine that said, uh, by the way, uh, I was in analysis for 25 years. And oh my, my analyst up and died on me. <laughs> and that's how I got out. <laughs> so I was felt very lucky. Uh, and uh, I, after I wrote this piece, I, I just wrote strictly that, and then uh, I showed it to a friend who sometimes went to my church, and, and she said, well, where's the spiritual message of that? You just wrote about the, uh, the horrors of the analysis and what happened. And when she said that, it immediately came to me, and I went home and I wrote down this part that I'd like to read, and we can probably conclude this part with this. It's from the 139th Psalm, which is my favorite psalm. And uh, this is what I wrote and what I thought of. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. I would remember in this season my parents 
coming together. Uh, I was an only child. There were the three of us who would gather in the living room and my father had an old foot pedal organ and would play Christmas carols and of course we always played Silent Night and sang it together and uh, so our great saxophone player Sophie Fodd is going to play that now. Wasima Ali, who is the managing director of the Desmond Tutu Center at the Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. She has a doctorate uh, from Valparaiso and uh, a degree from Purdue. She currently serves as an ambassador for Indy Reads, the literacy program here and uh, serves on the board of directors for the Center for Interfaith Cooperation. And she is a Muslim woman from Skokie, Illinois. <laughs> and uh, we've, Ann and I have been talking to her and she's uh, a really uh, terrific woman who's explained a lot to us in just a few minutes. And Wasima, I wonder if you would enlighten this American audience, the role that Jesus and Mary play in the Muslim religion. Yeah. So I have to say that I'm a Muslim woman who grew up in Skokie, Illinois, who works at a Christian seminary. Uh, <laughs> that's diversity. Um, that's yeah. diversity. Right. Um, but to begin with, um, you know, many, 
and I will say, sometimes to my own surprise, I realize because Muslims see ourselves as the youngest of the three Abrahamic faiths, it's kind of incumbent upon us to know about our parent faiths, if you will, so Christianity and Judaism. And so within Islam, Jesus is, you know, Muslims believe that Jesus was a prophet. Um, but there is an elevated status of his prophethood, and that is that he was predestined to be a prophet. So Muslims believe in the virgin birth. In fact, uh, Mary, the Arabic name for whom is Maryam, has an entire chapter in the Quran devoted to just her and her example. So many Muslim women aspire to be like the Virgin Mary. In fact, many Muslim women who cover their hair, if any of you have seen Muslim women walking around, um, and engage them in dialogue, it's not surprising if they say it's as an example of the Virgin Mary. And uh, you also enlightened us in that, uh, that Muslims felt that Jesus is the Messiah mm -hmm. and, and that he will return. So Muslims believe that God kind of took Jesus' soul when he was on the cross, and he's predestined to come back um, as the Messiah. So, you know, Dan asked me, well, what about Muhammad? And I said, well, Muhammad died, right? Muhammad was buried, he died. And it's through Muhammad that we also know that Jesus is coming back, right? So Muslims are waiting for Jesus to come back you know, that follows the fight the Antichrist, Gog and Magog, and so the story goes. I think we should have a headline in the stars saying, Muslims believe Jesus is coming back. <laughs> I mean, that would be a shake everybody up. Uh, go ahead. So this is a season of um, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Should be that way, isn't that way, uh, doesn't seem to be that way. What are your thoughts on a season like this about what we need to do to come together? I mean, I think now more than ever, um, I, say, I, I have to say be in community with. And what that means is not just to be in community with to share food, because I think a lot of times people will, will look at faith and then divide it with cultures and try each other's food and have that be the extent of the interaction. What I mean is really engage in conversation with, because I think we have to get to that next level of saying we want peace, but peace is not the status quo, right? If you actually look at our history, peace is you have to get peace, you have to fight for peace. And that comes from a place of understanding, from a place of seeking that peace. Um, and I think, you know, and that is putting yourself maybe sometimes in uncomfortable situations to get to know each other more. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the Indie Star Forum. Well, it's to be in conversation with, and people who may be of the same faith as me, but may have had different, different political views or et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. and so I think it's to, to really seek that peace through dialogue, through immersing yourself in getting to know your neighbor, truly getting to know your neighbor. We're, we're going to talk tonight, uh, Anne and I, and, and Hyleen, who will, uh, be with us too. We're, go we're going to talk about the spiritual aspects of, of our particular religious faith. And uh, I realize that spirituality is a, I think it's more talked about or thought about in the, in the Christian faith. Uh, I, that may be wrong, but you said that you, the spirituality with Muslims comes from that Muslims 
pray five times a day and during that time of prayer is the time that you feel close to God. Yeah, so Muslims um, pray five times a day, and that prayer, I would say, is really kind of in a form of me- in, in the form of meditation. And then there's a component that accompanies the meditation, and that's a supplication. So the supplication is when you call upon God, um, but you do that first by meditating and remembering God and His prophets and um, His creations. Um, so along those lines, you know, even, even that five number, right, the Muslims praying five times a day, is actually an exchange between, the story goes, between Jesus, the prophet Muhammad, and uh, God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, from that exchange came down this, uh, this prescription to pray five times a day. And so it's, you know, um, before the sun rises, uh, after the sun rises, like afternoon, before the sun sets, after the sun sets, and then before you go to bed. What does your faith mean to you? So we kind of talked about this before, which is, um, from my understanding, faith and action are one. Spirituality and the life I live are one. Um, so even being in this platform is somewhat of a spiritual moment for me because, number one, I am in remembrance of, and I am in community with. Um, so, you know, my faith, the work I do is an extension of my faith. Um, the way I speak should be an extension of my faith. Um, the way I raise my children is an extension of my faith. And so it's really hard for me to look at the two um, very separately, but it's because I have my faith, I feel empowered um, and feel guided to be able to live a life that I feel like is worthy of that faith. I do have a follow-up question, and that is, um, so we're in the Christmas season for Christians and Hanukkah, for the Jews. So what are the thoughts about this holy season for some of your friends and some of the people that you've grown up with? Your thoughts at this time of year? So there was a time when uh, one of the Muslim holidays coincided with uh, Hanukkah and, and Christmas because one of the Muslim holidays, Eid, is based on the lunar calendar, so it moves. So when that was the case, it was great because it was a very merry season, uh, you know, and it was just like celebrating along with everyone else. And then, you know, it moved and it was earlier, like this year it was in July. Um, but for me, it's always been a time of, I mean, I love Christmas carols, right? And I grew up in Skokie, like I said, so we sang a lot of Hanukkah songs. Um, in fact, I have a funny story, which I will share. So I work at CTS. My offices are at the Christian Theological Seminary, and we were having our Christmas party. Um, and so we were singing a few carols, and some of them I didn't know. And so I looked at my assistant, and I said, God, I wish they would sing some Jewish songs. And she looked at me. She said, you're a Muslim girl in a Christian seminary wishing they would sing a Jewish song. And I'm like, oh, that is kind of interesting, isn't it? And I think it's a part of what makes me, I don't know, an American Muslim, right? Because this is a country where... You know, we all have migrated. At some point in your life, you've migrated from somewhere, um, you know, whether force in the case of African Americans or by choice, at some point we all moved here. Um, and I think we brought with us traditions and stories and history, and we learned to integrate it and celebrate it. So to me, that's just a part of my American identity. You know, my parents always raised me as your faith is Islam, your country is America. Right? There wasn't any conflict, there wasn't any contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. And that just like you could be a Christian American, I'm a Muslim American. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Wasima, thank you so much. 
uh, for being with us and, and for giving us this perspective. Dan, I, do you have I, anything else? Yeah, I, I just want to thank you. I, I think this has been one of the most uh, enlightening segments we've had on the show and uh, hope there will be a time when you can come back and, and some other uh, subject matter, but we really appreciate your being here. We thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I am very happy to introduce one of our distinguished guests, Hyleen Flansbaum, who is Professor of English and Director of the MFA Creative Writing Program at Butler University. She is the author of The Americanization of the Holocaust and numerous other poems, articles, and essays. She's also the editor of the Norton Anthology of Jewish American Literature, and uh, she writes poetry, nonfiction, and criticism about the Jewish American experience. Uh, welcome, Eileen. Thank you. Eileen, I know you have a you have a social justice background. But I want to start by asking you about the holidays, and I'm just going to leave that open-ended. What do the holidays mean to you? Well, I hope I'm not bursting any bubbles if I say that Hanukkah is not really a big holiday on the Jewish calendar. It's an American, it was an American invention to compete with Christmas. Um, they don't even celebrate it in Israel. So it's become kind of this major deal. And I think that that's because it's so hard to be Jewish at Christmas. I know, I know it was for me. I grew up in a time where there really was no such thing as political correctness. So we didn't sing any Jewish songs. Um, we just sang Christmas carols, and it's funny because I grew up in Brooklyn where probably half the class was Jewish, but that, that didn't matter. We were in a New York City public school and we sang Christmas carols, so to this day I know all the words to all the carols. And Was that annoying or do you have favorites? It definitely annoyed my father. I, I can tell you that in French class we learned um, carols in French, what is that? Da, da, oh, come all ye faithful. Oh, yes. So I learned it in French. I didn't really know what it meant, but I would be in the back seat of the car humming it or singing it in French, and my father would turn around and say, Stop that! Stop that! You know, it was, it was as if I had, like, was a traitor to some, but I don't know. I mean, they were just songs, and I liked them. I, I remember the first time I heard the song, Oh, Holy Night which basically rocked me to my core. I, I just don't think I had ever heard such a beautiful song. And I mean, for me, it was just art. It was just beautiful art. So I love Christmas carols. Truthfully, I do. Eileen, um, what is, when you, you said that uh, Hanukkah is kind of a trumped up <laughs> yeah. holiday to compete with Christmas or to at least give Jews a sense that they've got something going on uh, during that time of year. But what is the holiday that means most to you as a Jew? I love Passover. I think that 
a lot of people, uh, even non-Jews, enjoy Passover. Um, it's the celebration of freedom, of coming into freedom and liberation. I like very much that it has a little book that goes along with it, which is, <laughs> and you know, as a kid, I have to say, I really grooved on that. Um, you know, I was always sort of a poet in my heart. So I loved what they called the Haggadah, which is the story of Passover. And I loved several expressions which stayed in my head for forever. Like, this is what the Lord did for me when I went forth from Egypt. You know, the sort of poetry of those words, I think, was one of the things that made me a poet. Um, I liked having text, so that was very meaningful to me. And I could really sort of get with what the holiday was celebrating. It was a, it was a message that was translatable for all ages. Yes, we celebrate freedom. We celebrate our liberation from bondage, and that's... Yeah, yeah. And, and what, what's the Jewish expression about healing the world? And what does that mean to you? It's called tikkun alom. And I think as Judaism has become more assimilated to the American world and schedule, that is one thing that hasn't changed. Um, Jewish people have often been at the front of social justice movements, and that is because the religion calls them to do that, both with these mitzvot, which I talked about, but also with the Hebrew expression tikkun alom, which means heal the world. It's your job as a Jew to go out and heal what's wrong. And if you get started on that, you can have a lot to do. Um, and, and it, you know, I always think of the expression, um, think globally, but act locally, because there's so much wrong in the world, and you can feel overpowered by it and feel like you really can't change it. But the truth is, you know, these mitzvot that we do are between you and me, between one another. And that's the way I think of act locally. You know, the one of the, I mentioned to you before that I've always been a fan of Isaac Bashev's singer. And of course, he really represents the more spiritual side of Judaism and, and the mystical side of Judaism. Maybe that's one of the reasons I related to him. But I remember uh, reading early on his, book, his novel, The Magician of Lublin. And I later, uh, when his novel came out called Enemies, A Love Story, it's the first time I ever wrote a letter to, a fan letter to a writer. I don't know why that was, a, but it was. And I got a wonderful response from him because I had met him once before in New York. And I said to, in the letter I wrote, I said, it's always made me mad that you're always pigeonholed with other ghetto writers. You're, you're, you know, when they review your books until you won the Nobel Prize, they put you in these little pigeonholes. I said, I just wanted to say that I really relate to your people. They're like the people I grew up with, and I'm from darkest Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote back this wonderful letter. Uh, he said, uh, Dear Mr. Wakefield, of course I remember you. I am now in Monte Carlo, parenthesis, not gambling, explanation <laughs> But anyway, uh, I remember I, in the early days, I mean in the 60s, 
I was asked to write something by American Heritage Magazine, and I proposed a profile of Singer, and they turned it down. They hmm. said, no, he's just a, a Jewish ghetto writer or something. And then when he won the Nobel Prize, so oh, then it was all right to write about him. But uh, For a long time, Yiddish was not seen as the language that Jews should know. It yeah. was the language associated with the ghetto as you say, and the language associated with the Holocaust, because the Jews who were killed in the Holocaust, by and large, spoke Yiddish. It was their own Esperanto. Um, and when Israel was founded, there was a big push for people to speak Hebrew, which was supposed to be a language of victory rather than the language of death. Spinning back to social justice for a second, I, I remember being in church and hearing a priest, and this wasn't original to him, but saying basically our job is to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And you had a, you had a similar experience in Temple, right? Yeah, this recently. year um, I went to IHC, Indianapolis Hebrew Congregation, for the Yom Kippur service the night before, and the Rabbi Kritchever, we call him Rabbi Brett, gave a very stirring sermon about what Jews were obligated to do at this time. And he didn't exactly say Black Lives Matter, but he did say, think about the parents who send their children into the street and don't know if they're going to come back. And then he moved from there to Syria. And he said, think about the Syrian children who can find refuge and compared it to the famous boat, uh, the St. Louis during the Holocaust, which came full of children to American shores and the United States would not let it land. And so it went all the way back to Germany where all those Jewish children were killed. And, and he drew a parallel between those two things. And he didn't tell us who to vote for, but he said, um, you know, you have an obligation not to carry hate in your heart. That is not a Jewish thing. And I was very moved by it. I was kind of furtively looking to the left and the right to see how other people were taking it because this is Indiana after all. And you know, some people were just kind of snoozing away the way people do during sermons. <laughs> but, but I myself was riveted and very thankful that he had had the courage to say that to his congregation. In the New York Times, I read a story about a rally of the alt-right in which they were saying, Heil, victory. Yeah. Is your congregation and your feelings personally concerned about this new movement? Uh, yes, I would say I am concerned about it. I think that children in particular are most vulnerable to this kind of hatred. Um, I've heard a lot of stories too about what's happening to Muslim children and what's yes. happening to Latino children, which also frightened me. People in schools saying things to Latino children like, send them back or you're gonna have to go back. Children are very vulnerable to these things, don't have the same filters. As a news person, I find myself thinking about the big events that happen, sometimes locally, but sometimes, you know, something like what happened on 9-11.
And this may sound incredibly simplistic, but the way that those events almost have, they, they, um, there's a melting that occurs. And all of a sudden, that pers- person that you can't stand in the office that seems so toxic, it, it brings people together. There's nothing quite like crisis to sort of break down the barriers. You never want that. But I've always sort of marveled at that, um, almost from the wall of the news desk, is how this the compassion that, that kind of bubbles up and, and a shared experience has the ability to cut through all the hatred. We may go back the way we were before, but at least for a little while, it, it gets better. Well, you know, the basis, as I said earlier, of all religion, I think of this as Judaism is, in Judaism we call it transactional. And that's a phrase we get from Martin Buber, who some of you might know wrote I and Thou, um, which is, you know, God is what happens between people when they're being good to each other. So I don't know if there's some kind of conventional God up there looking down on us, but I do know that creating good between people is a godly thing. And it's hard for me to imagine that there are people who don't want to do that on a regular basis. You know, um, I, I thought today, and in, in talking to our Muslim guest, the, the, uh, uh, the, the sense that in one of Rabbi Kushner's books, uh, who was a classmate of mine at Columbia, uh, he says that to only know one religion is to not know any religion. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the need we have to understand other religions and feeling a sense of community. And I, I'd really, something Anne and I have talked about, uh, maybe wrapping up with that I, I'd like to do is that uh, one of my favorite things I heard, and it was odd to me, the context, it was at a, uh, a Benedictine monastery outside of Boston called Glastonbury Abbey. And the Benedictines, uh, just as the Jesuits uh, specialize in education, the Benedictines specialize in hospitality. So they welcome my Protestant church and let us participate and go to everything. And in the morning, uh, the abbot of the monastery gave a talk, a sermon, a homily, and he said that uh, he had that morning read the Old Testament lesson and the New Testament lesson, and he found that they were very contradictory. And what it had led him to feel was that we must take God as he comes to each of us. And that was so powerful to me because in a sense it explained, well, you know, if you're born in some certain places, you're bound to become a Muslim. If you're born other, you're bound to become a Jew or a Christian. And we must take that. And I, I've also always felt as a writer, and I'm sure you feel this, that our job is not to persuade people to think as we do, but to simply report, this is what happened to me. 
it doesn't mean it has to happen to you or necessarily should happen to you. It's just a report. And, and to always keep in mind uh, that we must take God as he comes to each of us. Eileen, th this has just been wonderful. Thank you very much, I enjoyed it. And it, it's a perfect segue into the piece that Susan wants to run, Dan? Yes, Susan is going to read a poem that uh, we all know part of, but not the beginning, which is very powerful, and it's the poem by Emma Lazarus that is on the Statue of Liberty. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. We usually have Sophie play uh, as our last song, I'll Be Seeing You. And I asked her tonight to play America because thinking of that poem and then thinking of what came back to me as the, the words of one of the verses of America, what came back to me was my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee I sing, long may thy land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us with thy might, great God our King. Thank you. <laughs> Mm-hmm.